Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Now, like a lot of folks, I've been a Star Wars fan ever since I was a little kid. I remember first seeing the movies on TV when it was a big deal that the cable channel was showing them in letterbox format. And let me just say that widescreen was much less impressive on our 25-inch square TV than it is on your average wide flat screen these days. One year for Christmas, I got the digitally remastered re-release of the original trilogy on DVD, and I was absolutely stoked. I was on vacation when my parents and I went to see episode one, and I was absolutely mesmerized watching trained Jedi like Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi do all kinds of amazing stunts when they fought Darth Maul. Uh, spoiler alert, I guess, if you haven't been awake since 1999. My wife and I eventually got into the animated Star Wars TV shows, and most recently, we were absolutely blown away by both seasons of Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni's The Mandalorian. My oldest son is even proud to show me when he's wearing his Mandalorian underwear, too. We're still working on boundaries with him. The more my wife and I invested our time into the ever-expanding, astronomy pun, Star Wars universe, we keep asking ourselves the same question, though. How did no one know Senator, then eventually Supreme Chancellor Palpatine, was the Sith Lord? Now, an an enormous amount of credit is due to George Lucas and afterwards Dave Filoni for for creating and crafting the stories they have. Palpatine was a master politician and master manipulator. Some would say those are one and the same. And Palpatine very carefully, and I think believably, guards his true identity well. That being said, I, I still can't help but wonder, how did no one know? Was there no one close enough to him that's suspected. I've been asking myself these same questions the last couple of weeks about someone I once held in high regard, Christian author and apologist Ravi Zacharias. It seems the reports that have come out about Ravi are ugly and disgusting and true. The preeminent Christian apologist was a master manipulator and pervert, with hundreds of explicit photos on his devices, and had apparently solicited women in the massage parlors he co-owned. I cannot help but feel crushed for all the women he hurt and for those who knew nothing about the sight of him. But the questions still nag and gnaw at me. How did no one know? Was there no one close enough to him that suspected? I was a junior in college when I first heard Ravi Zacharias, someone who would come to have one of the greatest impacts on my intellectual growth at that time in my life. I was riding back to college with a friend when I heard this guy on the radio with what sounded to me like an Irish accent. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) I was amazed, though. He was able to explain his faith in God in such a way that was intellectually stimulating and invigorating unlike anyone I had seen or heard at the time. When I got back to my dorm, I searched for the radio show we'd been listening to and found it. Let My People Think by, it turns out, someone who wasn't Irish at all but Indian, Ravi Zacharias. Whenever I would go back home from college, about a five-hour drive, for at least an hour of that trip each way, I would listen to whatever Ravi podcast I had downloaded at the time. I eventually bought his books and continued to consume as much of his media as I could, 
I've used his illustrations in my preaching and teaching when appropriate, and in my personal quote journal that I carry around with me in my bag, I have several priceless gems from him. A story came out in 2017 that seemed to threaten Ravi Zacharias's reputation. But RZIM, short for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, was able to deflect the allegations, and it seemed like all was well and good. To be honest, I think I felt like a lot of Christians. I didn't want to dig too far into the allegations, and I wanted to believe the worst about the people making the allegations. After this incident, I don't recall a significant drop in Ravi's popularity. Maybe I'm missing something. When he died in 2020, Christian celebrities and politicians headlined his memorial service, and it seemed like he died a hero's death. Turns out, Ravi was more than the winsome apologist we thought he was. He was a dark and sinister predator, who, it appears, deceived even those closest to him. RZIM conducted a report that concluded Ravi was leading a double life, and an independent report brought considerably more evidence to light that affirmed the coming avalanche of accusations. Now, the galactic emperor of Star Wars had a public persona who loved all the things he should love. One of the most memed quotes from the prequel trilogy is Palpatine saying, I love democracy. I love the Republic. Secretly, he was a Sith Lord who had engulfed the entire galaxy in a brutal, devastating, self-serving war. Publicly, Ravi loved all the things he should love, too. He loved his family. He loved God. Or so we thought. But secretly, he threatened at least one woman by telling her of the millions of souls who could be lost if his reputation was tarnished. I like what Justin Brierly said, host of the Unbelievable podcast. I highly recommend it. Go check it out. He's on YouTube and other podcast venues. He reflected on the Ravi scandal just a day or two after it broke, and his words stuck with me because I could very easily relate to them. He admitted, I didn't want it to be true, and that's the problem. A quick look through YouTube will show you just how many pastors, podcasters, and others have given similar reflections on this scandal. Given my longtime appreciation for and sometimes wholehearted recommendation of his work before all this came to light, I'd, I thought it was appropriate to share a few of my own thoughts about how we can respond when someone of Ravi's fame and stature falls so egregiously. First and foremost, care needs to be given to the women he hurt and threatened. This should be the obvious first step. But even as we reel in disgust at what the evidence clearly indicates he was doing, it is tempting to focus our energies on condemning Ravi while, inadvertently, not attending to the women he hurt. We need to invest in them, grieve with them about what happened, and help them heal. Second, instances like these should serve as a wake-up call to anyone with even the most modest degree of power or influence. And this even applies to me, someone who is basically an associate minister at a medium-sized church. We probably like to think we would never do what he did, and maybe we're right, hopefully we're right. But given the same power, fame, and influence, I think it's wise to assume that we, that I, am capable of behaving in exactly the same way. If I'm willing to admit I'm capable of doing more evil 
than I may be comfortable admitting if I can be appropriately suspicious of my heart. I can be that much more careful to check myself and, therefore, guard and protect others around me from what tempts me. A third and related point is this. No one is above accountability, especially for Christian leaders. The more influential someone is, the more accountability they should have. It is a dangerous hubris that leads me to think I can be accountable only to God, as if somehow I'm above needing the loving challenges of my brothers and sisters in Christ. No one is above accountability. Fourth, we should think very carefully and critically about how we use the works and publications of someone like Ravi. One, an- one answer is to trash everything he ever wrote, chop it up, and make packing material out of it. Such a degree of revulsion is, I admit, entirely understandable, especially from his victims. Another response could be that with whatever works of his you may have, those could still be valuable for the references to other literature and other thinkers Ravi cites. By way of analogy, I've seen New Testament scholar David De Silva make a similar argument about the theological dictionary of the New Testament, a resource originally authored by an actual member of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, Nazi Party. This multi-volume dictionary was billed as a resource for pastors, but has clear anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish biases. De Silva suggests the references to works outside the Bible from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, are still useful. Ravi's works might, emphasis on might, still be useful in a similar way. Once you find Ravi's citations for yourself and engage these scholars on your own terms, you may be able to bypass citing Ravi, provided you do the actual hard work of hunting down those references yourself. My dissertation advisor occasionally expressed his annoyance that some people would clearly copy and paste his numerous citations to ancient literature in exactly the same sequence with the exact book and chapter numbers he had without citing him. Y'all, don't do that. So, if Ravi, for example, quoted David Berlinski or C.S. Lewis, or even the late Christopher Hitchens, check those references for yourself and draw your own conclusions. I think, I think that's an appropriate way to use Ravi's work without honoring him, per se. The bottom line to all of this is this. I don't think you can be too careful with power and influence. It is best to use that power and influence to genuinely, honestly humble yourself and become a servant, because, as Scripture repeatedly reminds us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thank you all for listening.